the future this week. Sydney Business Insights. Do we introduce ourselves? I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Once a week, we're going to get together and talk about the business news of the week. There's a whole lot I can talk about. Okay, let's do this. Today in the future this week, the wearables deserve to die, why Netflix is resilient to hackers and pirates, and the challenges of building a great social network. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima. I'm a professor here at the Business School. I'm also the leader of the Digital Disruption Research Group. So Kai, what happened in the future this week? Our first story concerns wearables, a word we both have problems pronouncing. The story appeared on Fastco Design. It's called Wearables Aren't Dead, But They Deserve to Die. So the author, who's actually an author of a book on wearables, has a bit of a reality check on the topic, and she reckons that wearables have run their course. We have tried to make wearables work, but we haven't done so yet, and she doesn't see a good future for them. So your Fitbits, Apple Watches, and other things that you wear uh, haven't lived up to expectations, and therefore they deserve to die. But she goes on to discuss a few other things, wearables that you put in different places, not on your wrist, but in your ear or on your finger. So she hasn't quite given up on the topic, but she thinks we have to fundamentally rethink it. Yeah, And the economic case is there for fundamentally rethink it. So Pebble sold for almost nothing. Fitbit stock has plummeted. Jawbone is struggling. Apple is, is not conveniently not releasing any numbers on the Apple Watch. Yes. And bundling their sales with iPads and iPods and everything else. So why is that? First of all, I think, what do wearables actually add to our lives? So there was a huge case made for the fact that they will help us lose weight or keep track of um, all these things we never even dreamed of, wanting to know how much we turned around while we sleep, um, what our heart rate was when we woke up in the morning, or be able to make calls from our wrists. Um, none of those things were actually things that fundamentally change the way we interact with the world around us in the same way that, um, let's say, the iPhone did or even an iPad did. Basically, so far, the thing does two things. It collects a bunch of data about us and it serves as extensions of our mobile devices. And so the author said that on the one hand, we lose interest in that data pretty quickly. It's a bit like a New Year's resolution. You have all good intentions. You buy the device, you collect the data. But then because it's only one particular aspect of changing to a healthy lifestyle, it doesn't really stick. You don't make progress and most Fitbits and other devices end up in your drawer. And the other thing that they do acting as an extension of your smartphone, she actually says that just gets in the way. It just means that we're looking at our devices more and we do this already. So there's no real use case. So. Sandra, we're both wearing Apple Watches. I'm still wearing mine. What do you do with your Apple Watch? Check my next meeting. Mostly just look at the notifications on my iPhone and do some tracking of the activity that I don't really do. Yeah. So it's a good reminder that I'm not moving enough, failing to do all these things that I'm supposedly signed up to do. Yeah, so lucky enough it tells the time. So that's good. For me, it does three things really well. It keeps track of data while I'm exercising. I actually use it for that. It serves as an unobtrusive alarm clock. It taps me on the wrist. So I actually wear it during the night. So that's really good. When do you charge it? I charge it in the morning, which actually works quite well. And the other thing is because I commute on the train a lot, it's a really good notification device. 
So I can just glance on my watch. When a phone call comes in, I can, can see if I want to take the call or not. I can see all the messages that are coming in and I can then decide to leave my phone in my pocket. So it's basically a way a for me. Yeah, the notifications work well, but for me, it's mostly not to take my phone out of my pocket that often, which when you're sitting on a cramped train, is not actually all that easy. But it is a fairly expensive device still for what it offers, expensive notification system. Absolutely. It does tell the time, but then, you know, so does my iPhone, so does so my, my iPad, my microwave oven, my desktop computer. Which might every be spying th- on you. Yes. So my watch might do this. I don't know. And it's taking up quite important real estate on my wrist. So my wrist was used previously to wear my nice mechanical watch or it was used to wear a nice bracelet or other things, especially for men. I'm thinking bankers here and consultants would need to wear a nice watch. It's taking up quite valuable real estate. So wearables have failed to be very outcome oriented. That is the case that is being made, that this generation of wearables was pretty much just a nice add-on, but it wasn't geared towards fulfilling a particular outcome. Yeah, let's talk about these kinds of innovations. I mean, quite obviously, when smartphones were launched, when the first iPhone was launched, it was a far cry from what it has become. And it's pretty clear that even Apple, even Steve Jobs did not foresee what would happen later on because initially they were quite reluctant to actually create an app store and open up the platform for third-party developers and things like that. So devices are platforms, they are infrastructures for letting us do new things in the world. And smartphones have changed in quite profound ways, the ways in which we communicate, relate to each other, consume information, media, go about our daily business in the world. Smart watches and Fitbit devices have not done that yet. They might still do it, but I think we're still in a learning and experimental phase. And use cases might come from unexpected places in niche areas. One argument for that comes from a really nice Wired article from a couple of years ago already that was making the case that wearables are failing the people who need them most, where the people who could actually benefit quite well from this technology, people who are chronically ill, for instance, do not. So medical applications of these devices have been very slow to come to develop because of navigating the labyrinth of all the approvals that one would need to get getting through all the bureaucracy if you think medical devices. But this has the potential to basically shake up healthcare systems or reduce the cost of chronic disease. Absolutely. There's enough evidence to suggest that Apple is heavily working on extending the Apple Watch to become a medical platform. They are hiring people in this space. They have patents in this space. And they have released a health kit and research kit to platforms for uh, health applications and medical research. So they're very, very active in this space. And it harks back to Steve Jobs' vision to fix an important problem in the healthcare space, which is the disconnection between different providers and aspects of the healthcare system. But I think they are struggling with the very problem that they want to fix, which is the fragmentation of these systems and these practices and the fact that they have to really get on board and change the way various uh, professions relate to each other, uh, medical research, hospitals, doctors, patients. So it's a really complex business which takes time and energy and uh, a really appealing value proposition to actually change. Hmm. And 
it is quite difficult if you think of all these innovations coming out of places like MIT or coming out of the Silicon Valley. Most of these entrepreneurs primarily create things for people just like them, right? It is very difficult to create for a whole new industry or a whole new area or a whole new category of people. Absolutely. So one area that Apple is tackling is diabetes and obesity. They are working on a glucose sensor for the Apple Watch which might become a game changer for diabetes patients, but we will have to wait and see how this emerges. So our second story for this week is the big story around Netflix. Now, this story is from, from the Washington Post. It's called Hackers Leak Orange is the New Black. So what happened? So Netflix said that a small production vendor that they work with that releases the show to TV studios has suffered a breach through which a dark overlord hacker has managed to steal the new season of Orange is the New Black. And they have asked Netflix for a certain amount of cash. An money, undisclosed, uh, undisclosed cash undisclosed figure. cash figure. Actually, an undisclosed probably Bitcoin figure. Probably. And Netflix has not caved to the ransom request and the hackers have actually released yeah. Orange is the New Black and they the new season is out with on their Pirate promise. Bay. Yes, so the new season is released on Pirate Bay and can be downloaded via torrent by anyone who wants to engage in this piracy behavior. So how does this work, ransomware? This is a malicious software that hackers deploy that encrypts the data that these companies or even individuals have and prevents them from accessing it, for instance, until they pay a ransom and they can access it. Some ransomware encrypts your data, some ransomware steals your data, and they say, well, until you pay us the money, we will raise the data. Yeah, so that's a much bigger problem, right? It's just the fact that Netflix is such a high-profile case that we are talking about this, but it happens to ordinary people, to small businesses um, all over the place. There's been a huge increase in it over the last five or six years, and last year alone we've seen a 50% increase, and there's data by Verizon that appeared in a couple of reports saying it's increased 50% last year, so a huge problem. And while this is quite obviously illegal behavior, they really treat this as a business model. Exactly. And the business model today actually represents a huge departure from traditional business models for hacking. Traditionally, what we used to do is hack you, steal your data, then we would have to sell your data on the dark net. People would have to buy that data, which was usually credit card information, make the actual credit cards, use them somewhere in the real world and make some money out of it. So hacking depended on whatever you have to be valuable for me, right? So ransomware depends on what you have being valuable to me. That's right, to you. So what I do as a hacker, I just lock up what you have. And in order to get it back, you have to pay me. Yes. And the pricing model has changed as well. I don't have to pay you that much. I have to pay you in Bitcoin, but I have to pay you something that's the equivalent of usually $200 or $500 or $1,000 for a small and medium business. And this happens mostly to individuals and small and medium businesses rather than large organizations. So there's some real pricing strategies going into this. How do I price this? Right? Just high enough for you to pay, but not too high so that you can forego the loss. Exactly. And it's highly dependent on you actually giving me back my data and it never actually appearing on any of these websites because you have to trust that if you will pay me, I will give you back the data. And it's actually advice that FBI also gives a lot of these organizations pay and it's the easiest way out. It's also now become extremely inexpensive to buy ransomware itself. So if I wanted to 
hack you for as little as a couple of thousand dollars. I could buy the software or there is ransomware as a service. We know everything is software as a service. So, you know, we could profit share and start hacking Are people. you threatening me? No, I'm promising. <laughs> <laughs> So ransomware actually works and it's done usually, as I said, to individuals. But however, it's also done to places like medical centers where Hollywood's Presbyterian Medical Center was hit by ransomware earlier this year. And that was a huge attack because it held the medical data of all of their patients. And $17,000 doesn't sound like a lot of money. But obviously, in this case, going back to what paper records, what is your alternative? So it's time sensitive yeah, right. and the data is quite valuable to the person you're hacking. Absolutely. It's crucial. So the model often depends on people not having much time to react because they need the data back quickly, right? Because they depend on it existentially for running their business or their operations. And for small and medium businesses, that is almost always the case. But what about Netflix? The stealing Orange is the New Black, the show that was supposed to be released in June and releasing it on the torrent site a month before or a month and a half before. Is that really valuable to Netflix? So on the one hand, I think Netflix simply does not want to encourage this kind of behavior. If they pay this time, obviously they encourage this to happen more often. But frankly, I don't think they give a shit because the threat of piracy is not what it used to be. Now, this has now been released on the Pirate Bay, and it is available for download via torrents. You can do it. You we can will not include the links in our show notes. No, we will not include the links in our show notes. But the article makes the point that it is less and less a problem because only a fraction of Internet users actually does pirating, and it's not the demographic that Netflix is interested in. And people do not actually see much value in this because you can get the show via Netflix in good quality to your living room. You don't have to bother downloading it and streaming. You know, you don't have to go through the hassle. It's just there. So first is exactly that argument. Netflix has almost 100 million people who subscribe to it. How many of those people subscribe to it only for Orange is the New Black or would quit once they've got the Orange is the New Black? And Netflix is available in 200 countries. So it's actually much easier to pay a very small amount of money to watch it on your nice big screen TV rather than go to a torrent site, find the right torrent, find one that works for it, for it to download and sync it to your TV or to something else and try to watch it that way. Yes, but also the article makes an interesting other observation, which is there's really no incentive for most people who are watching this particular show, Orange is the New Black, and I think we have a short clip here for you. I thought you said this was an acting opportunity. It is. Other prisons get to do Shakespeare and shit. I want to play a role. Like... Desdemona or Ophelia or Claire Huxtable. Here we go. You ready to see some, some Shakespeare shit? You common cry of curse whose breath I hate. So people like this show, but they also like to talk about the show. So this has become a social viewing experience. It doesn't really make sense to view it before everyone else. When the show is released on Netflix, people binge watch it. So... With the market penetration of Netflix and the fact that many people can now have Netflix on all kinds of platforms reasonably cheaply, this has really taken the place that television, programmed television of old, some listeners might remember, has had in the past where people would watch a show the night before and then talk the next day at the office. So really it recaptures that social viewing experience that had been lost 
in the age of on-demand programming and instant access and fragmentation of platforms. And, and all it the highlights how important that is because for some of these companies, so not everyone is equal on the net. For a company like HBO, which is actually not available in 200 countries, it's only available in, I don't know, the US, Canada and a few other countries around the world. Their shows, things like Game of Thrones, are pirated like there's no tomorrow because people do not have access to that experience and do want to watch it at the same time as everybody else. Absolutely. And this, I think harks back to a misunderstanding about piracy that existed very early on. For many people, piracy was never about getting things for free, but having access in the first place. Now, early piracy via Napster, yes, there was an element of we can get music for free, but there was also an element of, wow, we can for the first time discover all this music. We can have access to all this music that was unprecedented before. So, Ironically, in my view, it is the content industries, the music production companies, the recording companies that kept the narrative that the internet is for free alive for such a long time through their narrative around piracy. So I think for most people, internet and streaming platforms and apps and smartphones are a platform for gaining access easily and they're quite happy to pay for the service and for the convenience of accessing large catalogs. Whereas the people who download because they want to get things for free, it's really a tiny minority. And that's what the article says. So Kai, if a show lands on the Pirate Bay and nobody watches it, did it really stream? Exactly. That's the point. So piracy is now very much a niche phenomenon. And what we're seeing now is that finally we're making money off the internet. I remember there was an article not too long ago in the New York Times. It's titled, How the Internet is Saving Culture, Not Killing It. In it, the author makes the argument that while in the early days the internet had been portrayed as this channel that kills art and culture and music and recording businesses, what we're seeing now is actually successful business models such as Netflix or Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music, Google Play, that do make money off the internet. And what is encouraging that there's a lot of niche phenomena on YouTube, bloggers, podcasts, producers that wouldn't have been part of the industry if it wasn't for the internet. So new forms of culture and art that are appearing that actually make money and that allow people to sustain themselves. So he reckons we're seeing a reversal of this trend and of this narrative where the internet is finally emerging as a medium that allows culture and art to thrive and actually to make money and to sustain itself. And I think that's significant. I would agree. <laughs> but seriously, it is significant for niche artists who now have access through YouTube to audiences that they wouldn't otherwise have access to, to people who are writing books or blogs or who are making movies who have access to YouTube and so on. Also to people who sell their things on Instagram, not only directly through the platforms that these large organizations offer, but also through the ecosystems that develop behind them. So, for instance, people on Instagram who are showcasing their lives, but are actually getting sponsorship from other people. Which brings me back to the idea of ecosystems, because that's another thing that this Netflix story has highlighted. We are quite often focused on cybersecurity within organizations. So we're concerned that the organization that we gave our data to or the organization that has our product is susceptible to 
um, attacks. And in this case, it wasn't really Netflix that got hacked. It was one of Netflix's vendors. So all of these organizations are as strong as their weakest link in their ecosystem. And that might be a vendor, it might be a supplier, it might be someone doing the sound editing on one of their movies. And that's always been the case. In the music industry, many of the leaks of albums pre-release came from CD production facilities where people would steal the first CDs coming off the production line, would go home, digitize them, and then upload the MP3s to hacker sites would then distribute them online. So this is not a problem that's also going away anytime soon. No, it isn't. And the same happens with Apple. We see a lot of rumors and uh, releases of parts of new iPhones or MacBooks that are leaked from the Chinese suppliers which produce these devices. And obviously they have to produce lots of them pre-release. And so the closer we come to the date of announcement or the release date, the more accurate pictures and videos of parts and therefore renditions of what the product will look like appear online. So this is not a new phenomenon and it's not one that will go away anytime soon. So this leaves one more story for the day. And that story has got to be Yik Yak. And the fact that the app is now officially dead. Yik Yak. What's Yik Yak? Yik Yak was considered the darling of the anonymous messaging space. So think Snapchat in its early days. And it had an anonymous chat app that mostly drew in high schoolers that could send anonymous messages to each other, no matter what they were. So I think what was significant about the app is that when you logged in, you would be connected to people who were in your vicinity, in the same location, roughly. So you would automatically talk to, in an anonymous way, to people who are around you on the same campus, say. So especially for high schoolers, this would be the way to stay informed and figure out what's going out and really stick around. So why did it fail? Why didn't it work? So first we need to know that it didn't initially fail. It used to be valued at almost half a billion dollars. It attracted almost a hundred million dollars in venture capital. So this was a success for quite a long time. Even though it grew quite rapidly in the beginning with high schoolers and college students flocking to the messaging app, it started to have problems with harassment and bullying. Once you have an anonymous app that behavior will emerge. And the company never really found a way to beat it. They tried to do something about it. Absolutely. They were in the media for it. They were criticized for it. There were cases that were being flocked in the media. So they had some really negative press around this. And they tried to do various things. Such as introduce profiles in it, uh, do away with anonymity and introduce some profiling. But it never recovered. No. So in the end, it turned out that the anonymous aspect was actually what was so appealing to users, encouraging all kinds of silly, but then also malicious behavior. And in the end, what made the app appealing also brought it down. But is this a case of a startup starting up without a clear master plan? Let's hear from one of the founders of a great social network, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, what he was thinking in the early days of Facebook where things were going and his grand plan for taking over the world, shall we? When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. Harvard didn't have a Facebook, so that's the gap that we were trying to fill. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. Um, we're hoping to have many more universities by the fall, hopefully over 100 or 200. And from there, we're going to launch a bunch of side applications, which 
should keep people coming back to the site and maybe could make something cool. So clearly Mark Zuckerberg had a real plan going into this. Yes, he foresaw everything. He had a grand plan. He knew exactly what he was building and he built it. And here we are. That's really not how it works, right? No, the way it works is that usually don't have a master plan. You figure out things as you go and you try to adapt. So what the successful organizations do is figure out ways to build a community around what they're doing, have people coming back and engaging. One of the things Yik Yak did and to some extent Snapchat did at the beginning as well was focus a lot on the demographic as the key being attract people of a certain age, not enable people of any age to create a community around that space. And they were stuck with the right demographic, but that did not make any difference in the long term. No, they failed to give a good incentive for people to come back in the long term. If you're focusing on a particular demographic, then you're just stuck with people of a certain age and you have to always appeal again to people of that demographic. What you really want is you want to capture an audience and then have them grow with the platform, not kick them out when they leave school, for example. And you have to give them a reason for coming back. So Facebook connects you to your friends and you keep connected and you can grow that network. So you want to stay with that peer group and hear from that peer group and interact with that peer group. And have a product that's more rewarding the more you use it. Whereas with things like Yik Yak, the product doesn't become more rewarding the more you use it. So what you want to foreground is relationships instead of transactions. So Yik Yak was a transactional platform. It's a little bit like uh, Groupon for deals. There's no incentive for retailers or customers to come back to Groupon and uh, build a lasting relationships unless they always have new deals. They always do new transactions. With the disclaimer that the type of transaction matters because we could bring up Tinder. Well, the type of transaction uh, certainly matters. But what matters more is building relationships and then have recurring transactions that over time grow to higher value with people or organizations that you actually want to engage with. So in the case of Facebook building a social network, Yik Yak was explicitly not doing that because everything was anonymous. And when they reverted from anonymous to having profiles and building networks, they were just one among many and they try to solve a problem that others had already And solved. we've seen organizations that have tried to learn this lesson. So companies like Snapchat have started out in the exact same place as Yikia, but have tried to move on to other things. The fact that Snapchat does have a battle on its hand with Facebook, we've discussed last week, so we won't go into that today. No, the jury is still out on Snapchat and their success going forward. But the point here is really about building great networks and that you have to grow them organically. So when Mark Zuckerberg started out, it was really about growing the community first. And he said that and they started small and then adding services as you go. So what you need is not a master plan, but a sense of direction and then a way of iterating forwards, experimenting with services, keeping what works and discarding what doesn't. And the way of adapting very quickly. So one of the other failures that we highlighted, I think, with the Yik Yak story was their inability to respond quickly. So the moment they introduced the profiles and that didn't work, it took them quite a while to remove them. And by the time they removed them, the damage was done. So clearly at that point, uh, they didn't really know how to respond. Which brings me to a last point, harking back also to last week when we discussed Juicero. So much like Juicero, Yik Yak received a lot of venture capital for an app like this. So they clearly must have thought, we are successful. We have all these users. We have all this money. 
which in my view, and we don't know for sure, but surely if you have that much money on your hands and you have a successful user community, there's no real pressure and incentive for finding ways to make the business sustainable. And the moment in which things unravel, there was no response from the Yik owners of knowing what to do next. So that yardstick was missing. Facebook, when they started out, they started out on a shoestring. They had to iterate forward. They had to be smart. Everything they did had to appeal to new users. Yik Yak had lots of users. They had lots of money. There was no pressure to actually iterate forward in a way that keeps them or makes them sustainable. Exactly. And unfortunately, I think that's all we have time for today. I think that was a good session. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This was The Future This Week, brought to you by Sydney Business Insights and the Digital Disruption Research Group. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online, on Twitter, and on Flipboard. If you have any news you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi.sydney.edu.au.